0: We are in our second to last week of this series on the gospel of the kingdom. So um, next week, Grant's going to be preaching one last parable, and then we're going to transition to a new season, so a new series. So I'm excited to do that, and the text that we're looking at today is kind of long, so I don't have it on the screen because it would be about five slides long, but pull up your Bible app on your phone or if you've got your Bible with you, and I want you to go to Matthew 25. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. And then we are also going to be in Mark 9. So today we're looking at Matthew 25 and Mark 9. Okay, so Matthew 25. So today we're tackling the parable of the ten virgins or the ten maidens or the parable of the oil, whatever your translation says at the top of the subtitle. Um, So we're going to be looking at this. I'm going to be reading to you guys from the Passion Translation. Um, You can read from whatever. It's a fairly similar account in each of the stories. But let's go ahead and read both of these texts, and then we're going to unpack them. So here we go, Matthew 25 verse 1. We're going to start in 1. And this is Jesus. He has just been teaching about his second return. So then he picks up saying, "At the time of my coming, at the time my coming draws near, heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to 10 maidens who took their oil lamps and went outside to meet the bridegroom and his bride. 5 of them were foolish and ill-prepared for they took no extra oil for their lamps. 5 of them were wise and sensible for they took flasks of olive oil with their lamps." When the bridegroom didn't come when they expected, they all grew drowsy and fell asleep. Then suddenly, in the middle of the night, they were awakened by the shout, "'Get up! The bridegroom is here! Come out and have an encounter with him!' So all the girls got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish ones were running out of oil, so they said to the five wise ones, "'Share your oil with us, because our lamps are going out.' "'We can't,' they replied. "'We don't have enough oil for all of us. You'll have to go and buy some for yourselves.' While the five girls were out buying oil, the bridegroom appeared. Those who were ready and waiting were escorted inside with him and the wedding party to enjoy the feast. And then the door was locked. Later, the five foolish girls came running up to the door and pleaded, Lord, Lord, let us come in. But he called back, Go away. Do I know you? I can assure you I don't even know you. That is the reason you should always stay alert and be, stay awake and be alert because you don't know the day or the hour when the bridegroom will appear. It's an interesting parable has some obvious black and white applications to us right Jesus is coming back and we don't know when but we're going to dive in in a moment on some of the cultural applications that would have been readily available to those at that time but before we do that I want you to turn to Mark 9 okay so we're going to look at Mark 9 starting in verse 14 now at first glance you might not see similarities in these two stories but by the end I hope you'll be able to see this so Mark 9, verses 14. Now, what's happening in this text is Jesus has just been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He has just revealed himself as God to Peter, James, and John, right? He has this encounter with Moses and Elijah, and I love I love that story when Peter is like, so, so is this it, God? Do we just build a tent and just live here forever? And then I love how in some of the translations it says, because Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Like, we all have a friend that you know, in those moments can't help but say something, and typically you're like, just nothing needs to be said. Just take in, the, take in the moment. So they have this amazing moment, and they're coming down off the mountain, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 14. It says, now when they came down the mountain to the other nine disciples, they noticed a large crowd of people gathered around them with the religious scholars arguing with them. The crowd was astonished to see Jesus himself walking toward them, so they immediately ran to welcome him. What are you arguing about with the religious scholars, he asked them. A man spoke up out of the crowd. Teacher, he said, I have a son possessed by a demon that makes him mute. I brought him here to you, Jesus. Whenever the demon takes control of him, it knocks him down. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth, and his body becomes stiff as a board. I brought him to your disciples, hoping they could deliver him, but they were not strong enough. Jesus said to the crowd, why are you such a faithless people? How much longer must I remain with you and put up with your unbelief? Now bring the boy to me. So they brought him to Jesus. As soon as the demon saw him, it threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground, rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Jesus turned to the father and asked, how long has your son been tormented like this? Since childhood, he replied, it tries over and over to kill him by throwing him into water and fire. But please, if you're able to do something, anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, What do you mean, if? If you are able to believe, all things are possible to the believer. When he heard this, the boy's father cried out with tears, saying, I do believe, Lord, help my little faith. Now when Jesus saw that the crowd was quickly growing larger, he commanded the demon, saying, Deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The demon shrieked and threw the boy into terrible seizures and finally came out of him. As the boy lay there, looking like a corpse, everyone thought he was dead. But Jesus stooped down gently, took his hand and raised him up to his feet, and he stood there completely set free. Afterwards, when Jesus arrived at the house, his disciples asked him in private, why couldn't we cast out the demon? He answered them, this type of powerful spirit can only be cast out by fasting and prayer. All right a lot big chunks of scripture so at first glance you might be going how in the world do these two stories have anything to do with each other but I want to break down the parable of the maidens for you for a moment I've brought with you one of my little replicas of what the oil of the with the little oil lamps looked like these are very similar to what the kinds of lamps the women in this parable would have been referencing right it's what they look like they don't carry a lot of oil can you tell so the oil goes in the big hole the little wick comes out the little hole and then when they're ready to trim the wicks they literally pull it out the little hole clip off the part that's burnt and burn again they would set these all over their house it was like you know in the 1800s here in america they'd have little candlesticks they'd go everywhere this was their form of that these are are very common there's different variations of the shape but very similar so when jesus is telling this parable of the ten maidens you have to remember his parables had veiled truths but they had obvious connections as well In our day and age, we don't get married in the same way the ancient Jews did. In that time frame, how you got married was you got engaged, your two families came together, they said this is a good match, and there was a bride price that was paid by the groom's family, right? We know what that is. It's called a dowry. We've seen that in other movies and whatnot, And so the groom's family would pay the dowry and then that couple would then be betrothed and they would be considered married in every way except physical ways. And so this was their time of really getting to know each other. After they were engaged, they would go separate ways. The woman would begin to do her preparations and the husband would quite literally build their home. He would go back to his house and build their home they were going to be in. So the engagement process took about a year. And then when the home was ready and they were ready, the woman, would, the bride, would gather her wedding party, okay? And they would wait for the bridegroom to come and pick her up, basically. Think prom night right? You're ready, you're waiting, and even if if the guy is on time, it still feels eternal. Anybody know what that's like? You know something big is about to happen, so every second feels a little bit like an hour. So when he makes the reference, when Jesus makes the reference, nobody knows the hour or the time. It has two connotations. One of them is the obvious, Jesus is returning, we don't know. But they knew at that time, nobody ever knows when the groom is coming to pick up the bride. Now think just in this room. How many different personalities do we have of the men in here? Some men, the second that sun starts setting, you better believe they're out there claiming their bride right? Some men might get a little distracted and it might take them a little while to get over them. This was get over to the house. This was a normal thing. So when they're talking about nobody knows the time or hour, I imagine some of the moms in the crowd chuckling going, oh yeah, remember that guy? He was like four hours late and we all were going, are you actually going to show up, right? And these weddings would happen at night. So it would be in the evening and the bridal party would be together in the house waiting for the groom to come for the bride. These 10 maidens are the bridal party. That's what it's referencing. It's referencing the group of women that the bride had around her who were her best friends, sisters, relatives, who knows. So the groom, let's go back to how the wedding happens. So the bride would be waiting. She'd be waiting with her friends. She knew the moment was, you know, she knew it was that day, that was her wedding day. She didn't know what time. The groom, when he's ready, he processes through the city with his wedding party and he shows up at the house and he literally shouts out, Holla at your boy. I'm here, right? Not quite like that, but he shouts out, your bridegroom is here. This is like a strutting moment, like, hey, it's me. It's time. Right now, get your booty out here. Let's go get married, right? And so they would all jump up in expectation, and all the woman's family and her bridal party would jump up, and they would go outside, and then together, they would now have doubled their party size process back through the city towards the groom's house where their new house was going to be and then there they would and this is how the custom was back then I'm a little thankful we don't live in that time frame but then they would actually consummate the marriage right then they would come out and celebrate that with all their friends and family there would be a lot of jubilation I'm not making this up there would be cheering outside and then they would go on and have the feast that would sometimes last up to seven days very very interesting stuff On a side note, while we're talking about it, it would be a fascinating thing to be raised in a culture that honors the marriage bed in that way, right? To be raised in a culture where you celebrated what was fought for in secret. That's the idea of marriage. When you show up to the altar, pure, ready to give yourself to your spouse from both sides, it wasn't just something you do to keep your honor and not be shamed. It was something you give as a gift that was something you fought for, something you protected, something you valued and honored. And that was the reason why the whole culture would celebrate it. It's pretty interesting. In our day and age, I can't imagine what it would be like to go to a wedding and have your kids standing around cheering for... That moment, right? We'd be like, ooh, I'll be a little bit late to that wedding, thanks. But that's how it happened. So if we're talking about what the people listening to this parable were thinking, they were having instant understanding that the groom always marches through the city, that the bride is always waiting, not really knowing exactly when. So in this particular parable, we see that the groom was delayed for whatever reason. I kind of imagine maybe he was putting that last finishing coat on the fireplace and he messed up and he had to fix it because he didn't want new mama coming in and being like, I hate this house, you know, never living that down because nobody in here would ever know what that's like. And, um, you know, that's what I picture. He got delayed. Who knows why, but he got delayed. And so they all fall asleep. Now remember, there's no electricity. How much light is this little lamp really putting off? Not much, right? So I don't know about you, but anytime the lights are dim, it's easy for me to fall asleep, and I don't live in a culture where manual labor is all we do. So just imagine, they're drowsy, he's late, they fall asleep. They wake up, and now we have this parable where these two sets of women in this bridal party. This story is not about the bride and groom, it's about the people surrounding the bride, right? It's about you and I. Okay, here's what I find fascinating about this parable. Some of these women were ready, some of them weren't ready. This is not speaking to your personality. This isn't speaking to those that are spontaneous kind of people who always schedule in pencil and those that aren't. That's not what this is about, right? If you're somebody who only schedules in pencil, you might look at this parable and be like, what's the big deal? You know, they didn't have their oil and they, they should, these other girls should have let them borrow it, right? We're all sharing. We're all friends. What this is talking about is what you honor. It's what you value, To me, when I read this parable, one of the lenses that we just cannot overlook is this understanding that this is the bride's wedding day. This is the biggest day of her life. If you've ever been married, then you know you want the people surrounding you to honor the importance of that day, right? You want to know the people that are around you have your back. They are aware of what's about to happen to you, the weight of what you're about to go through as now becoming a a full-grown woman, now becoming a fully responsible adult, all of those things. So what I think is interesting about this is that some of the women in her bridal party understood that, and their their posture was, I don't know when he's going to get there, but I am not missing it for anything. And the other women in her bridal party were like, Yeah, it's going to happen. And maybe they made assumptions. Maybe they just didn't think it through. But at the end of the day, they didn't honor what was happening in that woman's life and in that man's life. Can you guys see that? So they weren't prepared. Clearly, this parable talks about preparation. Let's jump back over to this story in Mark 9. This is the same idea of preparation here. Here we've got this boy, and he is in great need he is in tremendous need. And you've got Jesus having just had this phenomenal moment, and he's coming down, and he realizes his disciples are picking a fight with the religious leaders. That had to be a real killjoy. I don't know about you, but it's like, I just got to, I just got to show my best friends who I really am, and then you guys are doing what? You know? And he has to go solve what's happening with the fight. And so as we break down that story, what I see in this that's so fascinating, I want to direct your attention to, is that Jesus navigates this story with expert finesse. The way he pastors the dad, the way he leads the disciples, the way he handles the boy, it's masterful, right? And so he's having this conversation with the dad, and the dad is saying, I brought him to you, Jesus, but you were gone. That's what he's saying you weren't here when i brought him to the disciples and so i asked your disciples to heal him because they're ministering in your name they should be able to do everything you can do and honestly at this point they were right we were seeing them be sent out we were seeing the disciples be part of his ministry team and they weren't able to heal this particular boy and so jesus when he pastors the dad i love this because i don't know about you but i have exhausted So many times I can't even count this prayer that the father, that the dad says, where he says, I do believe, just help me. Help me with my unbelief, right? If you're ever wrestling with your faith, this is a great prayer to pray. It's a great prayer to pray, because what he's doing is he's acknowledging, I get that there's something I don't see, but I'm also inviting you to help me fix the things that I'm trying to work out, right? And Jesus is not, his tone to the dad is not, oh, you know what, you're such a moron, if you could only believe. That's not what he's saying, he's pastoring him. He's asking him thought-provoking questions. He's like, if, okay, if you believe, all things are possible to the believer, right? He's beginning to shape his thinking. I I love this so much, and so it strikes the dad's heart that he responds out by saying, "I, I do, I get it, but I don't know what to do with all my doubt, so just help me, and Jesus is like, got it right? I'm gonna help you. This is another thing I want to point your attention to. The boy is convulsing on the ground. Okay, if you've ever been in a situation like this, Jesus' response is very abnormal, right? First of all, the crowd was already argumentative, okay? They're already at, at odds with each other. Then you have this crisis scenario where when Jesus walks up, the demon in the boy senses the presence of God and goes ballistic, and then Jesus does this. So how long has he been like this, <laughs> right? If, like, if you've ever seen a situation where somebody's in crisis, that's not the normal response. It's like, oh, let me help you, you know? Let me, let me get it, like, ah, stop, whatever, it, it engages you. The first time I was ever around someone that was demonized in this type of a way, I wish so badly I could go back and have this response. I might have been able to hear the Lord more clearly. It's not the natural thing. But Jesus, he's still pastoring the dad. He's still paying attention to the father because remember, he's always doing what he sees the father doing. And he's paying attention there. He's locked in and he's accepting, God, what is your will for this situation? And what do you want me to do here? And so he hears the Lord. He hears God instructing him to heal this boy, right? To deliver him is a more appropriate way to say it. So he leans to the dad. And he's like, how long has he been like this? And then, catch this part. A crowd begins to figure out what's going on. When I imagine this story, I don't imagine all the onlookers just like quietly watching. I believe them. I hear them throwing out all kinds of statements, like, what are you gonna do, Jesus? Come on already, right? Are you gonna help him? All the moms being like, somebody help that boy. You know, All the different thoughts that are going on in a crowd that's already amped up. And yet Jesus, in his peace, is able to focus on God. Now, catch this. Jesus did this story fully as a man. He had rejected his divinity, remember? So everything he does in this story is something you and I can do. Every single component, the peace he has, the ability to understand the complexities of the situation, he's navigating his disciples who are feeling a sense of failure. He's navigating the desperation of this dad who's not even sure if he wants to love God anymore. He's navigating the desperation of this boy who's completely helpless, right? He's, and he's doing this masterfully, but he's doing it as a human. I think we have to remind ourselves this sometimes because it's easy to be like, I could never, and then we just stop there. So what does he do? He sees this crowd going, and he honors the dignity of this child. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody has been afflicted by a demonic spirit. It is a completely humiliating situation. It is. It is so humiliating for the person, and if you've never had something like that happen to you, praise God, I'm so glad for you because it is a spectacle, And you are aware when that's happening, you are aware of the people around you. It might look like you're not aware because you're incapacitated, but you are absolutely aware. And I love this moment where Jesus is like, oh, there's a bigger crowd gathering, enough is enough. I'm going to protect this child. I'm going to protect his dignity. And I think that's something we can all learn from when we're engaging in spiritual warfare, when we're engaging with other people, when we're helping them break through from whatever their issue is, to remember the dignity of the one on the ground. Right? To remember the sanctity of that. Because here's the thing. That boy, Jesus knew, was going to rise up and be completely healed. But all the people who bore witness to that were going to always remember. So they're always going to look at that kid like the one who was on the ground incapacitated at one point right i just love that i don't know i felt like i just needed to highlight that to us today and so jesus commands the spirit how does he know what the spirit is he doesn't have a moment where he interrogates the demon he doesn't have a moment he hears from god because that's what he said he does he always is listening to the father so he hears from god it's a deaf and mute spirit he commands it to come out and then it gets worse we don't want to believe that we want to believe like every time jesus did something it just happened so quickly right but then it gets worse and then it gets really bad where the demon lives, leaves this little kid and it says in every translation he looked like a corpse on the ground everybody thought this kid had died now remember angry crowd trying to figure it out and now jesus maybe just kills this kid this is an interesting moment even just from a societal standpoint. And Jesus just doesn't buy into any of that pressure and he walks over, he picks up the kid, he's completely set free. But then we have part two of this story where the disciples come in and they're like, what's the deal, God? Why couldn't we cast it out? Here's what I think is happening in that moment. I think the disciples, these nine, they prayed the same prayer Jesus prayed. I think that's what happened. They said the same words. They commanded in the same way, but they didn't have the juice. And they're sitting there, and they're like, what gives, God? Because we know you're a human, you know? Yes, we get you're the son of God, but we also know you're a human. And so why couldn't we do what you just did when we did it exactly the same way? And he's asking them, and Jesus says, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. I don't think that means only deaf and mute spirits. And I don't think it means every time you encounter a spirit, you have to pray and fast right then. Here's what he's saying. I have stored up extra oil. I have stored up extra oil because I was prepared for whatever the cost of today might be. So what he's saying to them is this kind only comes out in prayer and fasting. Other translations or other implications could say a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. This is not to say that every, you know, let me put it this way. I think most of us in the room are familiar with the idea of fasting. It's not dieting, right? It's not going without just to make yourself feel bad. It's actually setting aside food to feast on God. It's a transfer, right? Fasting doesn't really work if all you do is just don't eat. It really works when you set aside the food as a reminder to press into God. So when you're fasting one meal a week, one day a week, whatever that looks like all week, whatever the Lord has led you to do, if he leads you to do that, then the way you do it is you say, when I feel hungry, you let the hunger compel you to go into his presence and to store up connection in his presence. You do the same with prayer and intercession. It's not just that we're praying and we're asking and asking, keep on asking, it'll be given to you. Sometimes we're just praying because we're just communing with God and we're letting him grow us. And then when you've been in a lifestyle of that and you show up in this moment where all this hubbub is happening, you're in tune enough with who you are, who God is, what God wants to do to be able to heal and deliver a demon-possessed boy. Can you guys see that? What's happening here, in my opinion, is Jesus is instructing them, you need more power because you need to know what's going to be asked of you. If you are called to be a leader in the church, or you're called to be a leader in the business world, or whatever you're called to do, you need to be ready to do that. What Jesus was teaching was you have to prepare. You can't just show up and say the words and expect it to have the same weight as someone who has set aside and sacrificed to the Lord. When I look at that, and I look at the parable of the ten maidens, it's the same story. It's who in here that Jesus is talking to, who is willing to go the extra mile to allow themselves to be prepared for whatever the day might require. It might be your best friend's wedding. It might be a random stranger's demonized child. But what's in your lamp? That's the question, right? These maidens, these five women who didn't have enough oil, they're pro- this is what I picture them. I picture them, you know, oil is really messy. Like I had a friend give me a little, I'm not a big essential oils person, so um, if you are, please don't take that as you can convince me because that probably isn't going to work. But I had a friend um, that I had said, hey, my, one of my kids has really bad allergies, you know, make me a potion thing. I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, make me your concoction and let's see if it'll work, Right. So she mails me this little, she lives in a different city, she mails me this little roller tube of, I don't even know what's in it, I just trusted her. And, um, and so I gave it to my son that has allergies and I'm like, rub this on you, right? It's so weird to me. And so anyways, when I pulled it out of the mailer, there was oil everywhere, okay? Oil doesn't mail very re- very well. And this cap was on there tight and I have to make sure this little tube, it's like this tall, never tips over because it gets oil on everything. This is 2019, so if we go back to the time when Jesus was telling this parable, and wherever they were putting their extra oil in, those extra flasks, can you imagine the kind of mess that would make if it just tips over because the edge of your burlap dress happened to swing by it, right? This is just how my mind imagines this story. And so one of the ways we could interpret these five maidens are like, this is an inconvenience to me to carry extra oil. I don't want to have like, the stain. You know what I'm talking about? Like, has anybody ever spilled essential oils on your book or your, your, your body, and, or not, I guess not on your body, everybody knows if it's on your body because you, know, you walk in it's like somebody was oiling up but you, know, you get it on your clothes and it never comes out. I spilled one drop on a shirt and I have baking soda that thing like, all day and it's just, it won't come out. I can't even imagine what these women were feeling having to carry around potentially an extra flask because their best friend's husband, who knows when he's gonna show up, right? It's a huge inconvenience. If it was me, I would be the one being like, I'll just go down and buy it when it's time because I don't wanna mess with all of that, right? I don't like the film, I don't any of that. That's not my thing. But this is what Jesus is saying. There's a deeper meaning in this. He's saying, listen, the cost For you to be prepared is going to inconvenience you. There is no way around it. When it's time in that moment to go buy the oil, you're just going to miss out. Yes, there's obvious implications about the end times and all of that, and I feel like you guys know that I don't need to dive into that. What I want to spend our time focusing on is, is what it was like for these five women who didn't want to be inconvenienced, who tried to go out and fix it in the moment and weren't let in to the wedding If you've ever arrived at a wedding in today's world, uh, a few minutes late, has anybody ever, don't raise your hand, okay? I'll raise my hand on behalf of you. Um, One or two times in all the weddings we've been to where we got there just a little bit late and you had to wait until the bride goes down the aisle because they're not letting you ruin her moment. And they should, right? When I got married, my wedding planner was like, don't you worry, from five minutes before to five minutes after, ain't nobody getting in this room because we don't want to spoil the moment. And I've had moments where you're like walking in, you're like, oh no, she's about to walk down the aisle, like get behind the curtain or something, you know, like pretend you're not there so you don't ruin that moment. Why? Those are not people I'm very close to because if they were close to me, you better believe I'd be there early. I'd be picking out my seat. Why? Because I value them and I want to participate in the biggest moment of their life. I think when the master of the house says, you're not getting in here, he's going, if you can't value what was happening, you don't belong in the inner circle. right? Let's go back to the Mark 9 story. What Jesus is telling his disciples is, if you want to really do what I'm doing, you have to do it the way I do it. You have to be willing to pay that price early in the morning if that's what it takes, late at night if that's what it takes, in the afternoon if that's how it works, right? He he went aside regularly to get with God, to get out of the pressure of the crowd, to release the burdens he continually kept feeling. If you don't think he continually felt felt burdens, then you're not understanding what was happening when he went off to pray by himself. Right? And even Jesus, and I, I don't know, I just feel like I'm supposed to say this to you guys, even Jesus did this alone all the time. Even in the most desperate moment, there was nobody there who really was able to pay that price with him. There's something about that for us when we, when we say, Lord, I want to be an effective person at my job, in my home, or whatever it might be, right? The odds are most of us are not going to have a Mark 9 moment where the pressure is on you to cast a demon, a a life-altering death spirit out of a child. That's probably not likely for most of us in the room. But something else will be, right? There will be a moment where you need to be ready for whatever the Lord would do to bring you into alignment to help someone. And I guess that's the question again, just what's in your lamp? And within that, what are you willing to pay? And how inconvenienced are you willing to be? And I wanna say, I'm preaching this to myself as well. The whole week as God has been speaking this word to me, I've just been like, man, Lord, it's it's hard to wrap your head around. Because the fact of the matter is, having oil-stained clothes is just really annoying. Like some of the inconveniences, they just are inconvenient, right? And I don't think the Lord really cares I mean, I want you, I want to be able to say to you, he's like, oh, wow, I loved that dress too, bummer, you know, but he's thinking long term, he's thinking big picture, he's thinking when you show up in that moment and you have your extra flask, girl, you're going to be so glad, you won't even care, or he's thinking when you've done that prayer and that fasting and you show up and you're the one who gets to deliver this child, all of that will all of a sudden be worth it. And so he's not gonna coddle us along when we're paying a price for something greater because he's looking at the moment of celebration when it all works out, right? It's all good. I'm just gonna give you a moment to let your brains catch up for a second. I don't wanna harp on this too long. But I think in the parable of the virgins, the parable of these maidens, these, these women, the understanding that you don't know the time is something I think we, we misconstrue some, right? Because they actually did know the day in this particular parable. Of course, when Jesus comes back, nobody's going to know. I love that scripture because all the people who have think they've got it, it's like, well, then it's not going to be that one because <laughs> the time you think it's going to be can't be because only God knows, Right? But I love how Jesus tells this parable and he tells it in a way that they can fully understand in that moment. I think the Lord wants to invite you into a relationship with him where he is able to speak to you in a way that you would fully understand. Grant and I talk about this a lot privately just about the idea that everything we do in life, like everything we learn from the Lord has a natural parallel right? Jesus himself makes a statement about if you can't understand the natural parallels, you guys, you're never going to get the heavenly ones because I'm trying to like be a translator and it doesn't exactly work like that anyway, right? And the Lord is saying there's, there's a natural parallel and I, I want to I land this here by just really encouraging you guys to be asking the Lord for understanding even through your surroundings. The parables, they, they played a part. They also fulfilled a prophecy, if, you're, if you know that theologically. You know, there was prophetic words that Jesus would only speak in parables, and so that was fulfilled through this. But it's also a way that our brains work. Stories affect us. Stories stick with us, right? When we make analogies, then can you just imagine every single wedding from that point forward, every person that heard that parable was thinking twofold, They're thinking about their friend getting married or their family member getting married, but then they're also thinking about the other level of meaning. And so I just want to encourage you to be asking the Lord, God, what is something in my natural life right now that you can speak to, that you can breathe on, that will help me understand why I'm being invited to pay the cost I'm being invited to? Because it might be fasting, it might be prayer, it might be something for some of you guys where you go out of this and you ask the Lord, you know, speak to me what I need to glean from this moment, and God says, listen, every day before you start your car I want you to pray in the spirit for 60 seconds. It might be something like that, and the first three days you're like, got it, and day nine you're like, really? Did I really hear that correctly because, you know, maybe you said six seconds, right? And we just kind of start compromising. But it's in those moments that we need to have some sort of a natural story to hold us to what the Lord is, is calling us to. So, all right. So, again, my question to you today is what's in your lamp? I want, for, for our church, for our body, I want us to be the kind of people who, when we say the same words, the same thing happens, right? Right? We're not all gonna be healers. There's it's a gift of healing. We're not all gonna be deliverers. But like, but when but we understand who we are, we understand who God is, and we allow Him to use us, whatever the case may be, in that day. That's my prayer for us as a body. That's my prayer. And and to do that, we all have to be willing to keep the oil in our lamp, at least full. The extra is, you know, up to you, <laughs> right? So I'm gonna pray. I, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to, to end this by just praying over all of us. And I think maybe if you can just turn on some music, Grant, and we'll just take a few seconds just to ask the Lord, what does this mean for me? Because I think sometimes when we hear a message like this, if it feels heavy to you, the tendency can be to just like put a little divider wall, like, oh, yeah, great, and then we move on with our life. And, then for, and so I think if that's the tendency, then just pause for a moment and let the Lord let you grab something that he wants to share. So Father, we just thank you We thank you, God, that nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. But Lord, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to prepare for that moment and all the moments in between. And so I just pray over every person in this room this morning that their hearts would be willing, their hearts would be willing to prepare on the front end, to honor you in such a way that they are ready for whatever you ask of them And Lord, I just pray over every person in this room that when the inconvenience arises, when it feels inconvenience, that there would be grace that kicks in. That there would be a grace that's sufficient for each and every one of us to kick in so that we can fulfill the purpose that you've put on our individual lives. And I pray over every person in this room that's not sure of what their individual purpose is right now. Lord, I pray you would open their eyes to see that. You would lead them to a path where they'd be able to see what you're doing in them. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and speak to our hearts right now. Just show us what do we do from here. Where do we go from here? In Jesus' name.